as we enter in uh, to today, uh, we're going to do a little practice. But before we do practice, I, I want to go ahead and just encourage you to do something, okay? Is everybody listening? Pay real close attention. Don't miss this. Next week, I am asking every single person in here to bring someone who has not been to Stone Point in a long time. That means at Brookshire's, when you're checking out your groceries, you should invite somebody. It means when you're picking up your dry cleaning, you should say, hey, I really want you to come and be a part of next week. Um, listen, here's what I promise. I promise that as we go through the series upside down, that every single week will stand alone on its own in many ways. Number two, I promise that we're ramping up our game in terms of welcoming people, and we want people to have a great time when they're here, and so that's going to happen, and they're going to be welcomed. It's going to be a friendly place. It's going to be a safe place for them to come. And then thirdly, we know that Jesus is going to do some work in people's lives in the next eight or nine weeks, okay? And so I need you as well as me, to get out, and we need to invite people, okay? Uh, we've got plenty of room in our services. We've got plenty of room and extra seats that we can put out. It's time to get back to Stone Point Way, and that is making our church not about us, but about people who need Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. And can I just tell you that I've missed the mark in that area too? And so it's been a long time since I've invited somebody to Stone Point. But listen, we want our church to grow, not for numbers sake, because I don't know how many people are here. I don't have, I don't have a clue how many members we got or anything like that. I, don't, I don't, Honestly, I don't care, okay? What I do care about is seeing lives changed and transformed for Jesus. And I think after today's message, you'll understand. But in order for you to understand, you got to be able to see things a little differently than maybe you're accustomed to seeing them. That's why Jesus gives this message in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is going to say lots of different things. They're going to challenge people's thinking, and it's kind of upside-down thinking in the sense. It's, it's a little differently. So in order for you to understand what Jesus meant, let's, let's get a little practice and make sure we're understanding and seeing things correctly, okay? So here we go. Y'all check this out. This is a what? Everybody say a doe, okay? Yeah. No, it's not. It's actually not a doe. Check it out. It's a seal. Okay, so here we go. Is this an elephant or is it a swan? It's a swan. See it? He's like, it looks like, like an elephant to me. Okay, you can take elephant if you'd like. Okay, here we go. Is this one here a giraffe or is it a penguin? Okay. Lion? It's just a lion. It's nothing else. I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's a creepy mouse. Look at it. Okay, is this a little puppy, a little puppy dog? Oh, everybody say, oh, okay, or is it an old man? <laughs> old man, yeah. Okay, here we go. Uh, this one right here, is the guy looking up or is he actually looking down? Okay, is this an angry guy with a sweater or is this a happy guy with a hat? See, I like the happy guy with the hat. Amen? Yeah. So here's the deal. So this idea of upside down is where we're going. It's to see things a little differently. And so Jesus is going to do that uh, in, in, in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, and, and in verse 1, it just says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
In verse 2, it says, he opened his mouth and he taught them, and then he began to say things. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it is literally the most famous sermon ever preached, and it's the best sermon ever preached. Yes, there is no sermon that a preacher can claim to have that is the best sermon ever, okay? Uh, Even in our arrogance, we think we do a really good job. Jesus has the the, the market cornered, okay? He has this incredible message. And in this message, you might recall him saying several different things. Like in Matthew chapter uh, five, he's gonna say a, a couple of things um, that are gonna challenge some thinking. Uh, he'll say throughout the sermon a few things like this. He goes, um, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And you're like, of course I shouldn't commit murder. And then he goes, but if you look and you talk to your brother in an angry way, or you do some unjust things, he goes, you are like committing murder. He goes, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. You're like, yeah, of course not. He goes, but listen, you've, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but if you ever look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're like, do what? So Jesus is doing these radical things. You've heard it said. He would go, uh, you heard eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I'm encouraging you that if somebody hits you, you would turn them, what? The other cheek. Jesus saying all these things in, the, in, in this sermon. And he's radically challenging the assumptions and the thinking of Judaistic lifestyle. For instance, a, a good Jew, a Hasid, or it would be a, called a loyal Jew, would be one who... They, they look notorious. They seem to have life together. They, uh, they are, in a sense, self-sufficient. They know the law. They keep the law. They're abiding citizens. They respect Roman authority, but they don't agree with Roman authority. They don't like them. And, and the only reason they respect them at all is because it would go against their culture as Jews to bring disrespect. Although you had some revolts uh, and some that would claim to be zealots of sorts. The ones who would, were zealous for God and they would go to fight for him. Okay, But for the most of the Hasid Jews, they, they, were just, they wanted to be solid. They wanted to have a great appearance. And so here it is, Jesus is going to question a lot of thinking. And and some of the thinking that he's going to question begins with these statements that are referred to in your Bible called the Beatitudes. I know you're looking at it in the heading in your Bible, and you're like, I have no idea what Beatitudes are, or whatever that is, right? It's Beatitudes, and that's cool. If you if you said Beatitudes or whatever, or the pastor you grew up in church, they were saying, that's cool too. It doesn't matter. What does matter are the principles that he teaches. And so Jesus is going to uh, teach a handful of different principles, and as he does that, he's going to challenge the assumptions and the thought process of his listeners. And so here it is, we know from verse 1 and 2 that he's sitting up on the side of a hill and that many people have followed him. When it says disciples, it's not likely meaning just the 12, but a multitude of people, a group of followers, disciples that are following him, that are a part of the way, uh, or desire to know more about Jesus' teaching, are following him. And as he opened his mouth, this is the first thing that he says in this entire sermon. So the most famous sermon ever begins with this line, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'll see another gospel account, I believe it's Luke, that will also address it. It'll say, blessed are the poor, for they'll inherit the kingdom of God. And it leaves it out the idea of in spirit. So it doesn't say poor in spirit, it just said blessed are the poor, for they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And might, might one add go, Okay, cool. So you mean I got to live broke in order to have 
the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, you remember the, the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. He goes, hey, you want to have an inheritance of the kingdom of God? Go and sell all your possessions. Come and give it to the poor. Uh, and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the guy walks away. And you go, oh, I guess it means that i got to be broke in order to be a Christian. And the answer is no, that's not what it means. Matter of fact, Jesus does something really marvelous here. He doesn't give us a Greek word for poor, like monetary. What he does is he gives us the word poor. Uh, that's a, it's, a, it's a word called tokos. It's the word in the Greek that literally means to be beggarly. So the idea of poor in spirit means to identify yourself with the beggarly. Poor in spirit or poor, the idea of inheriting the kingdom of God means that you know that without God, that you're actually empty, that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing to bring to the table. The idea here, it means this, that you are morally corrupt, that really there's not a whole lot good about us. Uh, It means that we're powerless uh, in ourselves, that there's really nothing that we could do, that there's a personal unworthiness before us. Matter of fact, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the prophet Jeremiah says uh, in, in verse 9 of chapter 17, he goes, hey, um, the heart is deceitful, is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The idea is, is that in our lives, we're pretty jacked up people. That apart from God, we really don't have a whole lot to offer. And the idea here that Jesus gives as he begins this classic sermon is, is hey, you should be like that of a beggar. Now, here's the deal. Think about this for just a second. In our culture, we like certain people and we don't like certain people, okay? So let me tell you people we like, okay? Um, we have an elderly gentleman and he's walking into Walmart and he's got a cane, right? And he's just hobbling along on his cane. And what do you do? You go out of your way to make sure the door is open to him, right? Uh, you even tell your kids, hey, boy, get out of the way, you little doofus. Open the door for him, okay? It's your way of helping your kids know what? Respect the gentleman. He physically is not capable of getting around without a cane. And so we don't look down on him. Matter of fact, we might respect him or even, in a sense, have a warm feeling towards this individual in a way that we would say, hey, let's get out of the way. Now, here's the deal. Same with uh, a handicap sticker, right? I mean, if a handicap sticker, if they pull in uh, and, and they use a handicap spot and they get out and they hobble along or they move themselves into a wheelchair and they roll in, you go, wow, let me get out of the way and let me help them. Now, let me tell you, there are a few people in this world that agitate me. And they are the ones who have a handicap sticker, but are not handicapped. You know what I'm talking about? Some of y'all have done this, haven't you? You're the person that you park there and then you run into the store and that clearly brings out the anger in me. You're like, dude, I'm about to throw down with you. Why? Because you just parked in a spot and you took from a little elderly guy that needs it so you could run in and get your Bluebell ice cream real quick, okay? Anybody else, uh, just like you're, you identify you agitated with me? Like, like if you see that, you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to throw down on this, this little dude, right? Uh, okay, so that happens. There are people that take advantage of it. But by and large, if they have a cane or a crutch or a wheelchair, physically they're impaired, in some way we go, let us get out of the way and help them. You agree with that, by and large, okay? I know there's a few case-by-case scenarios that we might not agree on. Same, okay, emotional health. We, we would try to do the same. Matter of fact, schools today have done a large degree of changing in the last couple of decades due 
to emotional health and intellectual health. We have ways that we help students learn. We're willing to do some slight adjustments and testing and the way that we test and the way that we um, bring about abilities for kids to learn. You got that? We have no problem with that. But then we do have a problem with a couple. You remember the beggar? Okay, you're pumping gas and uh, here he comes. And you try, like you try, like you're pumping, you try to turn your back in just a way where you didn't catch like his eye contact, you know what I'm talking about? Because you know that when he catches your eyes, that here he comes, right? And so you're trying to avoid him, you see him, he's already hit up two other vehicles, and here he comes, and you, you catch eye contact with him, and you're like, oh, no. And so what does he want? It just, hey, sir. I'm broke, and then here, here comes the 12-minute sob story, right, about, you know those people, right? Sob story about why life is tough and about why their kids don't have diapers and why if you just gave them a dollar or two, their life would go, what, off the charts better, right? Just if you have $2, I can get down the road, tank of gas, whatever. You got that? You've ever been in contact with that? Now, let me ask you a question. Why, in your mind, do you have such a problem with the beggar? I mean, you don't have a problem with the guy who has a physical impairment. You don't have a problem with the guy who has an intellectual impairment. But you do have a problem with the guy who has a, a what? A poverty problem. You have a problem with the guy who he doesn't have the wealth that you think. And so what actually happens is, is you either give him two bucks or you say the classic line, sorry, dude, I don't carry cash, right? And then I add on, yeah, Dave Ramsey would not be proud of me, Okay. I only got a visa, dude. Sorry, right? And you know, like you avoid them. You got your classic line. You know your way. And then something happens in your mind. And, and every now and then you go to places in your mind that you wouldn't want other people to know, okay? And you think, well, listen, if you would get a job, you'd make more than $2 an hour. And in the time that you've been begging here, you had already made what? Enough to buy all the diapers and all the gas you wanted today. And you could have got a bag of Cheetos, right? Or... You go from there, you're like, man, if you weren't on drugs or you didn't look like a druggie, you would be fine. Or I, I, bet, if, I bet if you would get, a, you know, if you'd get away from that group of people that you're hanging around, all those thugs over there, and, then, and you just go to places oftentimes in our mind, and you go, wow, this is the beggar. But what's interesting to me about this is that Jesus uses a word here, poor in spirit, that would in a sense evoke the emotions of the beggar. Matter of fact, Jesus would even say um, later on after the Sermon on the Mount, he would give a parable and he would give this parable in Matthew chapter 9. I want you to see it uh, because it, it just reminds us of what Jesus is trying to do here as he starts this classic sermon. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, Jesus is reclining at the table. And, uh, and, and so as he's doing so, he is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. Now, when you think about tax collector, I want you to think about the guy who just approached you at the gas station, right? Why? Because the person that evokes your emotion at the gas station is obviously a liar, a thief, a drug addict, and they're lazy and they need a job, right? That's what you thought. This is who Jesus is sitting with. Jesus is uh, with them, reclined at the table, and then, there were some Pharisees, verse 11, that see this. So, so it says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Uh, help me understand. 
how, if, if Jesus is this rabbi, if he claims to be uh, that of a prophet or, or somebody from God, then I'm, I'm clueless as to why he is spending all of his time with these people who, who keep approaching us, who are filthy, they're nasty, they're sinners, they don't keep their word, they're liars. And then look what Jesus says. But when he heard it, now look, look, catch this real quick. They didn't ask Jesus. He goes, when he heard it. So they, they go to the disciples, hey, why is, your, why is your master, why is your teacher, why is he hanging around with these people? When Jesus hears it, he just goes, hey, um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Now, go and learn what this means. And then he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus does something, and, and right here, he gives a little more upside-down thinking as he goes through the gospel account. Matthew's recording, and he's telling us, he's sitting, he's reclined with all these, these sinners, these nasty, vile liars, thieves, um, adulterers, liars, um, People that have committed murder in their heart and ultimately probably adultery in their heart and mind, right? This is the people. And, and these guys go, why, why is he? And Jesus goes, listen, have you, have you not realized that I came not for the people who have uh, their life together, but if you remember, catch this, if you remember a physician is for the healthy. No, no, no. A physician is for the what? Sick. Okay, now catch this, okay? I just did something to you, and you didn't even catch it. You remember what the doctor gave this old man? A cane. You remember he gave that teenage girl that sprained her ankle a crutch? You don't have a problem with the physician giving a cane or a crutch, do you? See, you pick and choose what you have a problem with. And the great physician says, the problem is, is that I didn't come for those who are healthy. I didn't come for the ones who are okay to not use crutches or wheelchairs or canes. I came for the ones who are limp and they're lame and they cannot walk. That's who I came to rescue. I came for the ones who can't get their lives together. I came for the ones who are sick. I came for the one who's constantly hitting people up at gas stations. I came for the ones who are constantly having to start regen over or take steps back because they can't figure it out. I came for the one who is jacked up. I came for the one who they're liars, they're thieves, they can't get their budgets together. That's who I came for. And then he says, now you need to go and learn something. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what Jesus means there is this. He goes, I don't care what you look like on the outside. I came for those who are desperately begging on the inside. Do you understand what he does there? So he goes, I'm not coming for the ones who, who get their lives together for everyone else. So just classic example, he's not coming for the ones who you drove up into this place this morning and uh, you were yelling at your kids. You're like, we are already 15 minutes late, kid. Like you're yelling, you're screaming, your wife is like, well, it is your fault. I mean, if you wouldn't have been watching the little uh, NFL stuff before the game got going, I mean, blah, blah, blah. You're just, okay. And then you hop out of the vehicle and everybody puts a smile on their face. Kids wipe their tear from their eyes. And what's the ironic part is, Craig, get this. You're our greeter going, hey, welcome to Stone Point today. We're so glad you're here. <laughs> That happens. 
Okay, if it happened to you, like if you don't mind, just come up afterwards. I would love a face with a name for this next service. It would be awesome to tell that, right? Just kidding. He goes, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. I didn't come for the ones who externally have it all together. I came for the ones who are broken and you know it. I came for the ones who are not claiming to have their life in order and who are not worried about building up their child's self-esteem. Have you heard recently, uh, just in the last few days, they've come out, not with helicopter parents now, but there's the lawnmower parents. Here's the lawnmower parents. You'll mow over every obstacle so your kid doesn't what, have to deal with something. You are the parent. love you, but you're the parent. You always drop lunch off for your kids so they don't have to eat cafeteria food. You make sure to send them with a bottle so they don't have to drink out of a water fountain. You want to make sure that they, that they never have challenges. That's the lawnmower parent, okay? And so we live in a culture right now, and I would say we've moved towards that in recent history to where we want kids to feel really good about themselves. We want kids to, to in a sense, um, to, to, to not have difficulties or circumstances. We want to try to get all of those out of the way so they have what? The life that you never had. Because after all, growing up was so tough, Right? We didn't have some of the toys they had, and we didn't have some of the life. Now, I'm not referencing things that in your childhood were really rough. What I am saying is, is that we have developed in our culture now this mentality that we want to build our kids' self-esteem. We want them to play every game. We want them to start. We want them to all have trophies. Yes, that's happening. Why is it happening? Because of parents like me. Why? Because... At the end of the day, we oftentimes want to promote an image that's really not true. Social media has been a large contributor to that. Uh, We want to pretend to have a life that we really don't own on Facebook. Why? All out of the desire to be more. But the, the problem is, is this, is that Jesus goes, I really don't desire for you to be more. I actually desire for you to become less. I actually don't have a problem with canes. Why? Because any time that God is our crutch, that's really not a problem. So you might have a friend who's atheist or agnostic. I've, I've seen recently in, in different stories that people might say, well, you know what, Christianity is just really a crutch for people who aren't smart enough to figure other things out on their own. And you go, okay, that's cool. But when's the last time that a crutch was a problem? When's the last time that a cane was a problem? Matter of fact, that same guy who would see spiritually God as a crutch is the same one who opened the door for the old man physically. Why? Because we can't get it together in different areas of our life. And here's why. Because we are not beggarly. We're not beggarly. We look down on the beggarly. But the deal is is this, is that that's who Jesus came for. Let me show you another example. Jesus is going to tell a story. It's a parable in Luke chapter 18. And he's going to do so in verses 9 through 14. And and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, that's okay. We're going to put it for you up on the screen because I I want you to see this story because it it really implies what it is that we're, we're, we're thinking through. In verse 9, he says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Now, there were two men in the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. So Jesus is giving you the same idea of two different groups of men. He goes, there's one that's a Pharisee who they are arrogant and they're haughty and they're proud and they look down on other people. They're the ones who have their lives together on the outside. They're the ones who scream to their kids in the car, got out and welcomed people to the door. 
Then you got the other, and they're tax collectors. Tax collectors are the members of our community that hit you up at the gas station on your way here this morning. They're the ones that have absolutely no desire to enter into this place because of people like me. The ones who always have the cop-out of the excuse because of the visa. The ones who are always too busy to have a conversation about why they're in the condition they are. And so Jesus gives this example. It's the same example, very similar to the one he gave the people he's reclining with. He was reclining with who? Tax collectors and the Pharisees had a problem with it. Here he gives you the Pharisee and he gives you the tax collector again. Now the Pharisee, as he enters the temple, he stands by himself and he prays this or thus to God. He goes, I thank you that I am not like what? Other men. I'm, th- I'm thankful that I'm not like them, that I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Now, you read that, and you're like, dude, you're arrogant. I mean, how proud, I mean, how selfish. And and here's the deal. I have a question, because I'm a man. You're telling me that if Jesus just upped the standard on the Sermon on the Mount on what an adulterer is, that it's someone who ever would look lustfully on another woman, and you're telling me that you're not an adulterer? Like you're in a temple going, I, I tithe, I pray, I fast, I do all this. I'm not an adulterer. I, I'm not unjust. I'm not like these other people. You ever have a question for people like that? And then look at verse 13. But then there's the tax collector standing far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me for for I'm a sinner, and I tell you, this man, he meant, uh, this man, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? Because this tax collector, do you see the difference? He stood far off. He wouldn't even dare to look to the heavens. And then when he finally prayed, he didn't say, hey, God, I'm grateful I'm not like this other man. What did he say? God, I am a sinner. Okay, so the person that we struggle with that hits us up, they're beggarly, is a problem in certain areas and not a problem in others. Do you all understand what my jest in this? You go, okay, yeah, yeah, bring it, bring it home though, okay? Here it is, listen. The beggar that you're most annoyed with is the one that right there your heartstrings just attached to. Think about it for just a second, okay? Uh, Jesus gives another parable. There's this righteous man who's indignant and arrogant, and, and he goes, I'm glad I'm not like these other men. Look at all the things I do. And you go, oh, I mean, that's just detestable. I can't believe that he would brag like that. How arrogant. Y'all know those people? You know? Yeah? You raise your hand if you know that arrogant person. Like, yeah, okay. If you didn't know him, like, you, that might be you if you don't know one of those, Okay. Uh, Then you know the other, you know the tax collector, you know the liar, you know the one who's always hitting up the church for a little more money, you know what I'm talking about, always coming in, benevolence calls. Yes, you know, can I just give you real church real quick, y'all ready for this, y'all can handle it? Let me give you real church world. Real church world is that on a weekly basis, most likely daily basis, we get four to six calls per day asking for people for help, Okay. Now, now let me explain something real quickly to you, okay? Um, this is a topic of conversation among every church. Matter of fact, I'm, ga- I'm gathered at a pastor prayer breakfast this last Thursday. We're supposed to be praying for one another, and one pastor goes, hey, before we get to praying with each other, um, let's talk about benevolence in your churches. 
And I'm like, okay, what do you want to know, man? Uh, he's like, well, uh, we're struggling with benevolence. He goes, we're getting hit up all the time, and I just we don't know how to handle it. Like, how do we work through benevolence? And I'm like, well, like, what are your challenges? He goes, well, he goes, I have a couple of different challenges. And he goes, I, I just I struggle. Should I give cash to people? Should I not give cash to people? I'm like, never give cash. Okay, just you know, go and buy their gas or take them whatever. Just don't give cash. He goes, well, I've got two other struggles. And I go, okay, what are they? He goes, well, one of them. Is this how how much and how how do you know how you help them and how, I mean how, and shouldn't we kind of background check them and shouldn't we spend a lot of time with them and make sure that they're not lying to us and all those different things and I go you know what it's really good to have a system in some way and make sure that people aren't taking advantage of you but I said let me let, let let me help you with another perspective I said I've served in a lot of different churches and every time that somebody came in for benevolence I happen to usually be the guy. They got stuck with them, okay? Now, you go, well, what do you mean by stuck with them? Because let me explain the church staff to you, okay? This is reality. We can talk reality, real, real life, yes? Um, everybody uh, on the team is gathered in there. You're like at coffee breaks, 10, 15 in the morning. Everybody's eating a cookie and having a cup of coffee, right? There's like 12 of you in the room, and then this guy walks in off the street. And all of a sudden, you look up, and you're alone. Like everybody else is all of a sudden, like, I've got emails to respond to, you got your, your music guy is working on a Christmas play, and it's January. Like, it's it, 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 like, oh, man, you're really ahead of the game. So when, when somebody comes in and they're beggarly, here's what happens. Listen, this is legit church world talk. People run for the hills. And then what happens is typically somebody on your church staff will meet with someone, and here's what you have to do, particularly when you have committees and teams and people you report to at the top. You'll spend two hours of your time assessing whether or not somebody is lying or telling the truth so that you can give them $10 of gas. Now you go, okay, well, shouldn't you do that? And I go, absolutely. I'm, I'm good for conversations and I'm good for fact checking, but here, let me, let's, let's just do math real quick. Y'all good at math? Okay. Um, you're going to pay a church staff guy. Let's just hypothetically say that in the course of his week, he makes $100, um, you know, per hour. Okay. Maybe that's a little high. Maybe it's $50 an hour or whatever, okay? $50 an hour. Let's do that. $50 an hour. Our people are way down, okay? Um, yeah. But let's just hypothetically, for math's sake, $50 an hour, okay? $50 an hour. Let's go 25 for all of us in here. $25 an hour. $25 an hour, okay? You're going to go $25 an hour for somebody that needs $10 of gas, and you're going to spend at least two hours fact-checking, making sure that this person's not lying to you. Now, let me ask you a question. You can go $50 or $10. What's the better math? Ten every time. You go, whoa, 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 wait a second. If you're going to give them $10, then what, what if they don't use it for what they say? I don't care. We don't care. Why? Because when Jesus spends time with the beggarly, he goes, I'm a physician. And a physician will see anyone who's beggarly. And what you do with what the physician tells you is up to you, right? I mean, there's a lot of you in here that you've seen your physician lately at a yearly physical, and he's like, hey, dude, you really need to eat better, and you really need to start exercising. And what you do with it is up to who? You. It is not your doctor's problem that you have gained 10 pounds since you last met with him. He didn't, 
make you eat a Snickers, and he didn't make you stay in bed instead of going to jog. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Our thinking is mixed up. Now, I, I want you to understand, I, I am not saying that we should give frivolously to anybody that has a need. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have some conversations. What I am saying is that by and large, our methodology, uh, methodology is way off. The way that we're thinking through things in church culture is off. See, Jesus didn't come to make you the best version of yourself. Why? Because at the very core, there is no good version of yourself. You know those people that are arrogant? Yes, you know them. You know those people who continually beg and like they're annoying? Yes, you know them. If you don't know one, again, you may be one, right? Can I just tell you something? Do you know why we give so graciously to people around here? It's because I am one of those people. I am. I am the beggar. I am the one who can't seem to get my budget together. I'm the one that can uh, be prone to a broken marriage. I am, bro- uh, I am the one that's prone to leave the God I love. I am the, I'm the one um, that any day could be searching for a new job because of one poor decision. I think Brene Brown, she's a sociologist. Uh, she says it in a way I think all of us maybe could understand. Maybe we can relate to what Jesus is trying to help his audience see. Look what, he, look what she says. We are those people. The truth is we are the others. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people. The ones that we don't trust, the ones that we pity, the ones that we don't let our children play with, and the ones that bad things happen to, and the ones that we don't really want living next door. We are those people. You know why we struggle to reach our community and our neighbor? It's because somehow we think they're those people. They're the ones who got that annoying car sitting out front that they will not move off their front lawn. They're the ones who will not paint their house. They're the ones who leave trash out. They're the ones that their kids go to school and they get lies and they might actually give it to our kids. They're the ones who live paycheck to paycheck, they're the beggarly, they're the ones that we don't want to be like. And Jesus spent all of his time hanging around those that you don't want to be like. So my question is, is what does that say about you? What does it say about me? I'll tell you what it says. It says that we don't have a proper view or an understanding of who we really are. See, as Americans, we're taught really early on in our our lives to do what? Hey, get it together. Hey, you're tough enough. Hey, boy, quit crying. Suck it up. Be tougher. Hey, God only gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. Really? Where's that in the Bible? I've never seen that. You know what God does? God does this. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the word blessed is the word makarios. Happiness only settles in the heart 
of the beggar. Happiness only settles in the heart of the one who can't get their stuff together. Have you ever told your teenager, hey, get your stuff? Well, you didn't say stuff. Together? God knows that you're not able to get your stuff together. God knows that the church exists for those who are broken, who are destitute, who are poor, who are murderers, idolaters, thieves, scoundrels, and sick people. And Jesus said, I came to heal them. And I'll tell you, I think that the American church is standing in the way of Jesus, honestly. And listen, I know that in in my, uh, let me say this, um, in my emotions up here, I, I can oftentimes say things um, that could get me in trouble, okay? I know that. Um, can I just say something in my emotions? I really do strongly believe that over time we've lost compassion, and I really do believe that we've lost focus on being a church for this type of person. I, I, and I say that with sincerity and honesty. I really believe that. And, and, and I, 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 I'm not here trying to evoke your emotions. I'm not trying, I don't want to threaten you. I'm, that's not my goal. But my goal is to say, would you awake out of your slumber? I mean, would you really think about what it is that God wants to accomplish in this place? And, and listen, uh, I think it was Philip who, who kind of said, hey, what good comes from Nazareth? And he was talking about Jesus, the perfect physician. Look, it's easy to look around our community and our county and go, man, what really good comes from Van Zandt County? It's really easy to be in high school and say, you know what, I just want out of this place. But can I just, can I just say, I think what really God wants us to do is to look around with a fresh view. Look at our neighbors differently. Look at the person that comes in for that benevolence call differently. And go, how do we seek to do what Jesus did. You know what Jesus said, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he, he goes, I came to seek and save that which is lost. You know who's lost? Those who are broken and destitute without him. You know, you were once lost and maybe you've now been found, but listen, it's only because of God. It wasn't because somehow you got your life together. It wasn't because one day you broke your drug addiction. It wasn't because one day you got your finances in order. It was because God saw saw kindly to reach out to you in his grace and in his sovereignty to draw you out of your beggarly state to give you a new life in Christ. But listen, how quickly is it that we leave the beggarly state and we become the arrogant and the proud? We somehow now have our life together and look at all those people we left behind. Jesus didn't come to leave people behind. He came to draw men and women unto himself. And I pray that we would know two things. One is that we are those people. And number two, those people should not be left behind. And you might ask yourself a really good question, okay? How do I know that I'm those people? Like, how do I know that I'm a beggarly state? How do I know that, like, how do I know that that that's where I am? And, and, And even another good question, why in the world did Jesus start with this? Listen, Jesus can't do any sermon if he's preaching to a bunch of people that don't know that they're worthless without him. You got what I'm saying? The only way that Jesus resonates on the heart of his audience is if you know that you're nothing. Matter of fact, I love one one writer says, 
said in a way that I really resonated and understood. And he says it in his book called The Sermon on the Mount. He goes, God doesn't force his kingdom upon anyone. That, he gladly gives it to all that will gladly proclaim that they're losers without him. I'm a loser. Okay, now listen, it's really freeing to say it. So one, two, three, just go, I'm a loser. One, two, three. And see, some of you struggle to say that. And the reason you struggle to say it is because you live in a culture that doesn't believe that about yourself. And listen, until you believe that about yourself when it comes to the influence of God in your life, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is only for those who can go, you know what, I'm a loser. At the end of the day, I'm a loser. And listen, you're not uh, less of a loser than the guy who just approached you at the gas station. You're not less than the loser than the guy who came in the bed. You're just a different looking loser, but you're a loser. Have you ever had a pastor call you a loser? Well, praise God, because you're losers, and so am I. And you go, well, how do I know that? How do I know that? Well, here's the deal. You'll know that you're poor in spirit when you understand beggars. That person that's begging you, they don't deserve anything. But if you give it to them, then they'll take it. We don't deserve anything, but God gives graciously. Now, let me ask you a question. Can a beggar be a chooser? No. And so if God grants to give his life to us, then guess what? We should probably do a whole lot more Philippians 2 without grumbling or complaining. Think about this real quickly. If God gave you life and you were a loser and a beggar and he gave you a new life in him, then why, what are you com complaining about? Because really, if you're a beggar and you understand you're poor in spirit, then what did you deserve in this life in the first place? Nothing. You didn't deserve health, wealth, prosperity, and yet God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to make my face shine upon you. And get this, I've got a place that I'm preparing to receive you unto myself. There is a blessed home for those who are beggarly. But how oftentimes do we grumble and complain, and yet we're beggars? You're not a beggar if you're always grumbling and complaining about life. And here's the other thing is this. You know what beggars do? Do you know what beggars do? They beg. Beg, 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 beg. And they get really good at what? Begging. Oh, such beggars. But Jesus, he actually said something in Luke chapter 11, verse 7, that intrigues me. He goes, hey, ask. Ask. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. He goes, hey, beg for me. Beg, beg, plead. Pray often, beg. I would love to answer. James 1, 5 says, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask, and he'll give it generously. He's going, hey, I, I delight in a beggar. I delight in one who will lay their lives down and beg before me. Can I get an amen? amen? How often do we lose sight of it? You know why we lose sight of it? It's because of this American culture. And here's why. Because you've been taught to be Invictus. Invictus, the Latin word, unconquerable. You're unconquerable. Made famous by a guy named William Ernest Henley. Uh, the reason he wrote this is because he was suffering with, uh, with tuberculosis, had just had a leg amputated, had been through a difficult life, would die in his mid-50s. He would be made famous mostly by this poem. But this poem says what most of us think and mean and even teach our kids. And here's what it says. Um, it just says, Of the night that covers me black, as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. That's an invictus. Thankful that I am strong and that I have got it together. Then he says, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Meaning he goes, all of this is just a chance. All of this has happened. 
And he goes, but under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. He goes, I have faced it. I have conquered it. Even though life has prevailed, I'm bloody, but I'm unbowed, meaning it's not going to win. And then look, he says, beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horrors of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I don't fear anything. That's the idea. And then he says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. And listen, if you're a football coach, you love it. But if you desire into the kingdom of God, you can't think like that. Because at the end of the day, you are not the captain of your soul. At the end of the day, we're all peasants, beggars, and losers that come before the throne of a holy God in which we desire mercy and justice. And I pray that the God of heaven and earth would prevail in our lives that next time, probably today, that that beggar who comes begging, 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 that you would look and go, you know what, God, I'm a beggar too. And listen, you may just have a visa and you may not be able to help them. And I'm not encouraging you to give all your money to every person that begs in this community. That's not what you should hear. But what I am saying is this, is that when you see them, I pray that you would hear, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who beg. Blessed are those who don't have their lives together. Because that's who Jesus saw fit to save. And I'm so thankful that even though I was a loser, I can say the words of Paul in Romans 7, 18. I know there is nothing good that lives in me apart from Christ. I am one stupid decision from no longer being the pastor, a husband, and a father of three beautiful kids. And so may the Lord guide my soul. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for today. We pray, God, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen our minds. And Lord, as we strengthen our minds and our hearts, we know that that only happens when we are weak before you. God, we are not strong. Uh, We are feeble. We are absolutely nothing without you. Um, as the writer said, we're all losers. But when we finally arrive there, we recognize that we are the very people that we don't like, then you can begin to settle something in our soul, that you can begin to give us life and transformation and hope. And I pray, Lord, that you would do just that. So I pray, God, that you would help us to feel the tension in this room. I pray that the tension would resonate deep in our soul, that we only get the kingdom of God when we're beggarly. And I pray as parents that we would not... Um, mow over every obstacle for our kids. And I pray that we wouldn't seek to build their self-esteem, but more I pray that we would seek to help them face circumstances because as your brother James said, circumstances or trials develop in us perseverance. And when we have perseverance, we can stand the test and ultimately at the end, uh, we are better for it. And so I pray bring on circumstances, bring on pain so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And at the end of the day, We know that we're in need of you. And so God, help us. And we love you and we proclaim you are good and great and holy. In Jesus' name, amen.